This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeline Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, what if? Examining storytelling by changing the pivot points in speculative fiction. So this is <laughs> this is a really this is an experiment. Am- this is an experiment. <laughs> this is an ambitious episode. We've never done anything like this before. Um, I don't know whether Jules was at all inspired by the What If series, which has been coming out. Uh, weirdly, no, I wasn't. I thought about it sort of this morning as I was um, making some notes for my own use, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, I'm calling it What If," and there's the whole What If thing. But I mean. Uh, the thing with the Marvel What If on Disney+, Plus, which I've been really enjoying, by the way, is the fact that it changes something in the initial premise. So right. it's um, what if Captain America turned out to be Peggy Carter, for example. Yeah. Whereas this is like we start with the story and the premise as it stands and we change one of the pivot point moments of the novel. Yeah. Or the film or whatever. Yeah. Um and I guess it's it's just an experiment to sort of look at, you know, what what is at the heart of the story? How much sort of relies on one one bit? You know, who are the characters? You know, how much of the characters' actions are based entirely upon the situation? How much is just something that they would always do? You know, um, so I think it's going to be really an interesting. It's going to be an interesting discussion. So Jules and I are going to uh, we're going to bring up five sort of what-if questions of our own, and then we might sort of maybe delve into some of the what-ifs of our own storylines. Uh, before yeah. we go, let's... Should we just should we just give the rules, as it were? Yeah, um, I don't think we've really explained what we're, we're doing yet. So yeah. <laughs> just to say, basically, this is us attempting to show you in real time um, how to deconstruct and then reconstruct a story. Um, it's going to look at things like story structure, plot, character arc, character and action and things. So we're going to go for things that are relatively familiar because then you'll you'll say, well, we know that happens because X, Y, Z in the actual book or film or whatever. And then we're going to say what happens if this one thing was changed. Yeah. Um, we're not talking about gender bending characters. We've done something like that before. We're not talking about what if the main character is um, gay or whatever because again that's not what we're looking about we're trying to inspire some mental flexibility here so that you've got another tool in your toolkit yeah when it when you get stuck writing a story basically you can then go well what if i'm not sold into this particular version of the storyline what if i tried this direction instead mm-hmm. yeah um so yes it's going to be organic we haven't prepared lots of points or anything we haven't done lots of research um we're just going to bounce off each other yeah Okay, all right. So uh, the rules are, uh, obviously, we've got to both be sort of familiar with it. Um, It's got to be around a pivotal point. Um, And obviously, we are not saying that we think our way is better and that this is how the story should be written. That's not the purpose of this exercise. This is, as as Jules has said, a chance to explore journey and plot structure and understanding story beats. Okay, so this is just a fun little thought experiment. So... Uh, you know what? I'm going to usually. I, usually, I, I make Jules go first. I'm gonna step <laughs> up. I'm gonna step up and be the first. What if question? Okay. 
Okay, right, let's go. Are you ready? Okay, so I'm going with Game of Thrones. And I am going to say season one, or book one, what if Ned Stark hadn't alerted Cersei to the fact that he knew that her three children were actually Jamie's? Because Yeah, this is an interesting one. And this is basically... Uh a look at how it affects a series. It's not just the first book, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's, you know, how it would affect the whole thing. You know, because... So this is Ned Stark turning around and saying, okay, listen. Because <laughs> he gave a warning to Cersei because he wanted them to have the chance to be able to run away. And instead, what Cersei did was she just moved everything up the timeline. Yeah. Um, so what if he hadn't? What if he'd made that discovery and he hadn't gone to Littlefinger, he hadn't gone to any he had gone straight to the king uh, John Baratheon what what would have happened, not John, Robert Robert Baratheon, what if he'd gone straight to Robert Baratheon and told him what would have what would have happened I mean Leaving aside the fact that that would have been a minorly dishonourable thing for Ned Stark, and it's his his sense of honour that ultimately kills him. Um, yeah, I mean, would Robert Baratheon have immediately disinherited his three children? Would he have sent his wife away? I mean, would he have put her in a pit? Would he have had her executed? To be honest, I think that he would straight away. Um, I think in a rage, he probably would have immediately have had Cersei executed or imprisoned because I can imagine him not even going through the the due process I can imagine him just in a rage going in with his sword himself you know and attacking yeah, not, and killing her but it's not like it's going to be a jealous thing that's a sense of that's that's wounded pride because they you know he didn't love her or anything so no he didn't love her and I think to be honest he doesn't like his he doesn't like um his eldest son Joffrey. He's not particularly fond of Joffrey. His only sort of loyalty to Joffrey is the fact that, well, this is my son, I just sort of have to go with it. If he found out Joffrey wasn't his son, I think he would probably go ahead and kill them. I mean, considering as well, he he didn't care about the Targaryen children. He wanted the, the Targaryen children murdered. Um, I don't think... Robert Baratheon was particularly, you know, gentle when it came to that. So I think it's very possible he would have probably tried to kill his his children. I think he would have killed Cersei straight away, um, and he might have I, tried to kill his children. I, I th imagine Ned Stark probably would have gotten in the way and would have said, "Oh, arrest Cersei," but the children are blameless, you know. I think important point. Mm -hmm. um, he would have had Jamie executed immediately. Yes. Agreed. Um, but by doing that and by exiling or whatever with Cersei, then the Lannisters would have been forced to go to war. Yeah. And that's what I think would so have happened. Yeah, the Lannisters you would, have would, have, had, would have gone have, into battle. You'd have still had the fallout. But then again, you might have had the other House Baratheons um, lining up behind Robert because at that point it's a case of Instead of them being after the throne and saying, well, there's a Lannister bastard on the throne or whatever yeah. with, with Joffrey, uh, it would have been a case of, no, our house has been really insulted 
and there's a chance that one of us may be chosen as heir now because he doesn't have a legitimate heir. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Robert, we wouldn't have had the whole thing with Stannis and Renly. They would have been behind Robert. Um, The Starks would have obviously been in support, so they would have come in from the north, and with them, uh, you know, uh, Catelyn Stark's family as well. Um, and of course this completely changes everything in terms of the long-running elements of the series because you would not have had Aya going off to learn to be an assassin and those are the skills that she needed to defeat the Night King you know Um, you would not have had Robert, uh, you would not have had Rob Stark becoming the king in the north um, and in doing so ending up dead um, we wouldn't have had the Red Wedding. Uh, you know, <laughs> so many characters would not have died, Jules. <laughs> but they might have died somewhere else, because I think Robert Baratheon also was no longer fit to be a warlord. But perhaps some of the old training would have sort of come in and he might have been able to sort of, you know, direct his troops. But in terms of he wasn't physically fit to go out and fight anymore. Yeah, I completely agree. It's that, I mean, the book sort of, poses the question of what if Ned Stark had chosen to sit on the Iron Throne but that just wasn't who Ned Stark was and yet because he was somebody who would not immediately grasp the power he would have made a better king Mm. than both Robert or Jamie, Jamie who also considered it. Yeah. So um, yeah it's an interesting one. I think you know the war of the, the Seven Kingdoms and stuff would have actually still happened but in a slightly different way with different factions forming simply because it was an unstable system that needed some serious overhauling. Yeah. And we know that Daenerys would still probably have followed her trajectory because, um, you know, Robert had already put in place an attempt to assassinate her. Yeah. And what would have been interesting then is that obviously John Stark, John Stark, John Snow, John Snow would have still would have been able to actually go down, you know, send messages to his family and say, there is this zombie army <laughs> coming towards us. And even if Robert Baratheon didn't believe him because Robert Baratheon said, look, we're at war with the Lannisters, I don't have time for this, Ned Stark would have listened to him and Rob Stark would have listened to him. Yeah. Um, You know, so that whole, you know, the whole approach to that would have been very different as well. Um, And it might have also created then if Robert Baratheon said, look, no, uh, I, I'm not sending. What are you doing, Starks? Why are you sending your armies up to the to the north? I need them to fight the Lannisters, and that might have actually caused a division when you know Daenerys then turned up. That you know the Starks would have gone with Daenerys, um, you know, and joined up with Daenerys, and perhaps it would have ended up, you know, with a king in the north in some form or another. But it would not have been Ned Stark. Ned Stark would not have grasped power in that way. But if Robert Baratheon in a rage or during the fight with the Lannisters had been, you know, had killed Ned, then Rob Stark probably would have stepped up. Yeah, probably. It's the thing, it's all the little things that sort of, the threads, you pull on them and something else comes undone and 
another character arc changes slightly, isn't it? Yeah. So it was it was absolutely a pivot point. And even as Ned is doing the whole sort of, you might want to pick up your skirts and run for the hills, Cersei. I'll give you a head start, but I am going to tell the king. Yeah. Um, Honourable thing that he's doing, probably because he's got an eye of an idea of exactly how Robert's going to react. Yeah. Um. We even when that's happening, we're kind of going, no, no, this is a really bad idea. You have completely underestimated her and what she's willing to do. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it would have changed everything. I mean, I I did have this long joke. <laughs> ages when I was first watching Game of Thrones, which is what if you get to the end of Game of Thrones it's fire, it's hell, all of this rubbish and then it goes whoosh, and just zooms back to Ned Stark standing in the crypt with Robert Baratheon and Robert's like, well what do you, what do you say? Will you be my hand? And Ned just goes, uh no <laughs> no, 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 thank you very much <laughs> Yes, I'm not fit for purpose, my lord. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, it does it does completely change it. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at. I mean, it's such a huge one. It's almost too much for us to look at in in great detail in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. It really but is. you know, take it and and think about it and think about other things that would have happened. I think another pivot point is actually Bran being thrown out of the window. Yeah. And if Bran had just listened to his mother and not gone climbing the tower that day, then he wouldn't have been thrown out of a window. He wouldn't have lost the use of his legs. He wouldn't have ended up being a, a Varg, probably. Tyrion Although wouldn't was... have ended up being kidnapped by Catelyn's <laughs> staff. Yeah. yeah, basically this is this is an abject lesson in actions have consequences. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, right. Lord of the Rings, again, something everyone is familiar with. And I've picked a pretty broad one. Mm -hmm. And let's say they've got as far as the Council of Elrond. Mm -hmm. um, and they need somebody to take the ring to Mordor. And Frodo doesn't volunteer. And one of the others volunteers instead. We know that Gandalf won't take it up. So we can probably discount him at this point. Yeah. And... You know, Gimli and the other elves kind of know better than to touch the ring. But what if it was, say, um, Sam, for example? What if Sam was the one who said, well, I'm, I'm not really sure about this, but I'll take it to Mordor. <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I think the thing with Sam is that Sam was uncorruptible. He's uncorruptible, but he's also only motivated by his great love for Frodo. Yeah. So it's a tricky one. Would he have actually got anywhere or would he have just turned around and gone home? I, I mean, I think he ne didn't necessarily see the great purpose in the journey the way Frodo did. Frodo really understood why the ring had to be destroyed because he'd had time carrying it. Yeah. Um, whereas Sam kind of... I, I don't believe in, in the purpose, but I believe in Master Frodo. So that makes it a tricky one. But I mean, if, if it was Boromir, for example. It would have never. <laughs> it would have never. It wouldn't gone. have gone past Osgiliath, would it? Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I think if Sam had said, I'll do it, then, you know, I imagine that Frodo probably would have gone along with him. Maybe. 
I think if Sam had volunteered when Frodo was like sort of sitting on his hands, Frodo would have gone, I can't let you do that. I guess I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's Frodo's sort of upper class sense of responsibility that prompts him to, to act. Yeah. It would have been kind of interesting yeah. if if, um, if Aragorn had been the one to do it. Yes. And that would have been very interesting because he was already somebody who was deliberately trying to avoid temptation to take up the reins of power. Yeah. Um, because of you know his his inherited family guilt yeah and that ring had already seen off at least one part of his family and <laughs> he he did aragorn did not believe himself uncorruptible he turns out to be pretty by and large uncorruptible but then you don't really know until someone's had to carry the ring for the best part of a year yeah which is you know why I mean, Frodo, the fact that Frodo actually gets to the fires of Mount Doom is, is stupendous, really, before he then goes, no, 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 the ring's mine, I give up. Yeah. And if Frodo can't do it, then you can assume that pretty much everyone will fail at some point, but he got it close enough. What's interesting is if if Frodo hadn't been the one to to take the ring there's the possibility that the Fellowship wouldn't have broken up. Because Frodo obviously made the decision after Boromir kind of cornered him. But if someone else who was maybe a little bit more fight-savvy had been cornered by Boromir, they might not have been sort of, not scared off, but Frodo made the decision, which is, I've got to go and do this on my own. Yeah, but he, I mean, I don't think it was just because he was fight-savvy, not, not as good a fighter and you know small and weak you know about three foot five compared to a six foot man yeah um i think the other thing was frodo realized that the ring was working on everybody to a greater or lesser extent yeah. and that if he didn't get it away from them he would never be able to sleep because he would always be having to watch his back yeah which is partly why they had to break up the fellowship so i don't know it's whether someone else came to that conclusion I mean, if Boromir took it, he might have turned into a, a Dark Lord really, really quickly until someone killed him and took the ring back to Mordor. Yeah. In, unless he was so corrupted he went back himself. And yeah. I think the thing with Boromir is it's not actually the fact that there's something really wrong with him. I mean, he does have a certain amount of native arrogance or whatever. But on the other hand, he is generally a a good person who does worthy deeds, who really believes in things like protecting the weak and small and yeah. and, and defending his land and, and standing against Mordor. But it's these very good intentions that the ring is working on. Yeah. And that's why Gandalf won't take up the ring because he knows that he'd take it up des desiring to do good and he'd probably end up worse than Saruman. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, a, it's really interesting to think. Yeah. If Pippin had done it. <laughs> I'll take it, yeah. Pippin would probably have put it in his pocket and forgotten about it. Yeah. Pippin isn't actually as stupid in the book as he is in the film, but he does do some really daft stuff. Yeah. He, but he's, he's a child, so... Yeah, he's not a child, but he is a child. You know what I mean. He's only in his sort of... 30s, which is child by Hobbit standards. Yeah. Okay, alright, so next, we're going to the dark timeline. 
We're going into the dark timeline, guys. I feel awful about this one, but I've got to I've got to voice it. Okay, so how to train your dragon? What if Hiccup had actually killed Toothless? Okay, well, bear in mind I've not read the books and I haven't watched the film for some time, but um, it's Hiccup that actually makes the bridge between, you know, the, the Vikings, if you like, and the dragons. Yeah. So if Hiccup didn't discover that dragons could be befriended and even trained, mm. then they would never have discovered about the monster monster dragon that was making all the little dragons work for it. Yeah. Um, and that eventually that monster dragon would have come and destroyed everybody. Yeah, because it's an interesting thing if you think about what life would have been like for him. If he if he hadn't hesitated, if he hadn't looked into Toothless's eyes and not killed him in the end and cut him free, we would have might have had a situation whereby he killed the Night Fury, he brought back the heart, he showed his father what he'd actually done, and his, you know... And in doing so, got a little bit of clout because he killed a Night Fury, you know, within the village. People might then have started to use his his machinery, might have actually started to consider some of these things, which you do see in, in later films, you know, he, a lot of his technology has started to be used. And that is all hiccup. So they might have become more technologically advanced quicker. He might very well have still gone into dragon training at that point as well and started, you know, to learn little different bits and bobs. But he probably would have actually really struggled with that because the thing that got him through dragon training was, you know, all the knowledge that he'd been he gained by working with Toothless. So yeah. he might have been killed in that, or he might not have been. They might have started to implement the technology, um, or they might have said, "Look, we don't want you killing the dragons, but we want your technology." Um, there would have perhaps been still a divide between the, him and his father, but they might have sort of had a bit of more of an understanding. He might have felt that his father was proud of him. And then, as you say, we would have had this massive dragon, you know, um, which... This, this titan. This titan, who at any point might have actually, you know, decided to come up and, you know... Because we don't know, because we know that it sort of... It, it comes up because um, it's obviously agitated by the arrival of the Vikings who've gone in to go and fight it. So maybe that massive dragon would have just continued to sit there letting others feed it until they couldn't anymore. So we might have had an increase in dragon attacks on the village, which would have resulted in perhaps starvation and things like that. A further, you know, greater antagonism between the dragons. And perhaps it would have resulted then finally in the, uh, the, the alpha dragon coming in and destroying everything but it would have been a, a lot of a, a much more gritty much less a heartwarming story <laughs> uh, yes yes it would have been a completely different thing yeah so that's the dark timeline <laughs> okay um well not quite on a dark timeline here but uh just because everyone's so familiar with it harry potter uh, I think this is is a major pivot point and it kind of gets not lost but deliberately overlooked and I think that's what was designed and that is at the end of the Philosopher's Stone when Harry is asking Dumbledore why Voldemort tried to kill him as a baby and Dumbledore says ah that's the first answer I can't give you because Dumbledore knows it's because of this prophecy 
it's something that would have overhung and shadowed Harry's young life. Yeah. And has done anyway, but Harry having knowledge of it would change things. Yes. But there is a theory that if a child is old enough to ask a question, then they are actually, in fact, old enough for some of the answers. So perhaps Dumbledore was in the wrong in that respect, and perhaps things would have fallen out differently if Dumbledore had given 11-year-old Harry a straight answer. Okay, so what do you think would have happened? Um, I think the ending of... Uh, I think the ending of, oh God, I'm trying to remember, <laughs> this is awful, I should know. The Goblet of Fire would have been, not the Goblet of Fire, the, the Order of the Phoenix would have been different. Yeah. I mean, that's that's me leaping ahead a little bit and I'll work backwards as well. But if Harry had known exactly what the prophecy was, then the whole idea of this weapon, the something that Voldemort absolutely had to get hold of in the Ministry of Magic, yeah. chances are he, Hermione and Ron would have figured out what it was. Mm. Since Dumbledore knew the prophecy, if he, Harry already knew the prophecy, then he'd already be ahead of the game yeah. compared to Voldemort. He'd be less likely to have been tricked. Sirius probably would have lived because Harry wouldn't have been... Yeah. Wouldn't have ended up leading his friends into danger in, in the Ministry of Magic determined to save someone and relying again only on himself not on adults because that's what he's come to believe is is necessary yeah yeah if there had been a greater level of transparency then because that's the thing they're like oh we don't want to burden young harry and i'm like young harry will go off and <laughs> fight a giant snake anyway yeah, see, and it, I mean, Dumbledore even admits that that is his mistake, but we're so in Harry's point of view when he admits it that we kind of feel that we feel along with Harry that Harry is sort of de facto responsible, even though he is still a child and should not have that burden on him. Yeah. And Dumbledore is never completely open, and there are good reasons sometimes for him not being completely open. Yeah. Um, he has to, I mean, all the way through, he's sort of allowing Harry to figure things out for himself, to work out what's going on and to test himself. He is bringing Harry up to be a weapon. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Um, and even if he's doing it with kindness, it is still very much there. This is Dumbledore's great plan, and it is a plan that ultimately works. But could some suffering have been avoided along the way? Because Dumbledore, when he makes a mistake, really fucking makes a mistake. Yeah. You know. <laughs> There's nothing casual about that. <laughs> so, I don't know. Would it have changed the ultimate outcome? Well, I don't know. Because Harry wasn't somebody who was especially big-headed. He was naturally someone who inclined more towards kindness. Yeah. Um, just one of those people. So finding out that he was the chosen one, would it have been a terrible burden? Would he have spiralled into a depression? Would he have embraced it and started swaggering about the school? I mean, I don't see either of those things really happening. So knowing, I don't think, would necessarily have changed his character. Yeah. Except as he got older and started to understand exactly what that entailed, um, I think he would have started getting almost like performance anxiety, but to the nth degree. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine being 11 years old and told that you're to grow up and kill somebody because the fate of the world, or the wizarding world in this case, depends upon it. Yeah. 
I mean, that is a rather heavy thing to be told. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a re- okay weird parallel, but there's a reason people or you know scholars of the Synoptic Gospels believe that Jesus just sort of disappears from the Synoptic Gospels between the ages of five and 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 sort of twelve, and it's kind of like well. Yeah, he was speaking to those wise men in the temple and he was out riddling them. And then what sort of came out was, yeah, we think you're the Messiah and you're supposed to be doing this great thing. And it was just a a humongous sort of head fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I have to go away and think about this now. (laughs) I'm going to disappear for 10 years and get my head straight and apparently not have a childhood. So thanks, guys. Or, you know, he was spirited away for education type purposes. But but either way, that's a hell of a thing to lay on somebody. Yeah. It really is. To be honest, I mean, if you go with the Christian version of that story and say, oh, yeah, we told him he was the son of God, that would that would still be a massive head fuck. Yeah, it would be very heavy. This is, you're the son of God and in about ooh, 25 years time, you're going to be tortured to death. But no pressure, no and don't pressure. change anything you're about to do. Have fun. Off you go. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. All right. Um, Jules and I accidentally both came up with Harry Potter ones, so I'm going to do my Harry Potter one as well. My one goes a little bit further back, and again, it, it involves Dumbledore. So many decisions, Dumbledore. And so my what if is, what if Dumbledore hadn't borrowed the invisibility cloak? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because if Dumbledore hadn't been so desperately chasing the Hallows himself over a period of years Mm. and realised that James's cloak might be a a genuine deathly Hallow and then wanted to borrow it, uh, chances are that even with Wormtail giving up the secret to Voldemort that Voldemort wouldn't have been able to find the Potters because that invisibility cloak protects the wearer and the person the wearer cares about if he, you know, takes them under the cloak. Yeah. They're kind of, they're never detected kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a true form of proper protection. Yeah. We can say, so, we can say at least, maybe if all three of them hadn't been able to fit under the cloak, um, you know, it could have still been, at the very least, one of them and the baby would have been able to hide under the cloak. So we wouldn't have had... I mean, we might have actually still had that dyed-for-love protection magic. If, you know, if let's say... uh, Let's say um, uh, James literally said, run, Lily, I'll hold him off, and held him off. He died to protect both of them. Yeah, you know, it, it's the same thing. Is that you know? So perhaps they would have both been protected then, or perhaps you know it would have been a different situation whereby perhaps because the cloak was there, uh, James, who had been feeling going a bit stir crazy, would have said, "I'm just going to step out with the cloak," and Lily went, "Oh, okay," and he stepped out, and while he was out, Voldemort arrived and killed Lily, um, and wasn't able to kill Harry you know, the same thing happened. And James then returned to the scene of the crime, you know? Yeah, it's just, I think what would happen then is James is like Sirius in that he's an active, intelligent and very um, 
fit man who has got no intention of sitting back while other people sort of serve justice or whatever. Yeah. I think he'd go into seriously hunting down the other Death Eaters. He'd be kind of on a bit of a revenge trip. He might even end up in Azkaban himself. I think it's very possible, but I think... Well, first of all, I think that would be the case, but he did... There is the element that he did have a baby son. And there would have been an overwhelming amount of grief. So I think, first of all, we that the situation there is that other people would arrive. Um, you know, he and Sirius would probably team up together, but they'd make sure that Harry was somewhere safe first. Um, and Sirius would not then be accused of the murder. Everyone would know it was Peter Pettigrew. So Sirius might not have ended up in Azkaban. And to be honest, I think that even if James had gone off hunting uh, Death Eaters, um, he wouldn't have ended up in Azkaban because he was an aura, so he would have actually been allowed to hunt Death Eaters. Um, no, not not for that reason, but for some other reason. I can just see him losing it. I see. I I can I can see him sort of losing it, but actually. Maybe because he has the baby, something holding him back a little bit. Because you do, he is sort of shown to be a very doting father, and he has just you know. So I can see the sort of this anger of him wanting to go and do something, but perhaps it being prevented. Um, it's interesting. Also, if if he died and Lily survived, um, you know, and she was able to to raise him again, Sirius wouldn't have ended up in Azkaban. Um, you know, there would have been things would have been actually quite sort of different. Um, probably Lily would have had to have gone, would have been put into not hiding. Actually, she'd have she'd have been able to continue living there, and Harry would have had a much more stable childhood. Um, obviously, he would have been introduced to magic from a young age. He wouldn't have been half starved um, and abused. That probably would have changed his character. A little bit, so I don't know whether he would have been. He would have naturally grown up to be cocky, because I actually think without the influence of his father, that might not have been the case. I think he would probably have been quite moderate if it was just Lily who was raising him. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but then obviously, she's lost somebody very important. So how does that change her? Maybe you know there are there are people who just become completely different people when they lose their partners yeah yeah um yeah absolutely you know it, so she might have been perhaps she wouldn't have been fully present but i do think just the way that her of what we've seen of her character she would have she would do everything to sort of make sure that harry had a, a happy childhood he would have had Remus as well and Sirius as part of his life, who would have also provided a great sense of balance, I think. Yeah, but plus there's also the fact that she might... I mean, whoever it is, James or, or Lily, doesn't matter, whichever one's left alive, we know that during times of Great Depression, witches and wizards lose their magic entirely, or they can do. Yeah. So, and if you add to that with a double dose of... I hate this because this is why my husband slash wife, whoever, died. Mm -hmm. This was why my son was in danger. And they just continue to push it away. They might have actually, maybe not James, but I can kind of see Lily choosing to just try and raise Harry as, as a muggle. See, I, I don't see her trying to raise Harry as a muggle, but I can see her not really doing magic herself. 
But I think that because of who she was as a person and the way that she empathised and, you know, the wonder she felt about all of it, all of it, um, it would have been cruel to raise Harry as a muggle, particularly if he started showing magic, to try and repress that in the way that the, the Dursleys did. Yeah, but I don't mean in a ter- in a way of repressing it, but in the sense of just being constantly living with this fear because lots of people didn't believe Voldemort was completely gone. Yeah. So I need to... This, this desperate desire to protect someone that you may not be able to protect. Yeah. I, cer- I certainly think she would have given him a grounding childhood and that maybe they might not have been actually a very active part of the wizarding world during that time. And she might have taken advice from Dumbledore and Dumbledore might have said, yeah, you know what, just go into hiding and be quiet. Yeah. In fact, Dumbledore would have said that. Someone also did an interesting what if. It was like, what if what if McGonagall turned around and said, you are not leaving this baby here. I'm taking it and had just raised Harry herself. <laughs> and I love that idea. <laughs> Harry literally growing up around Hogwarts. Amazing concept. 10 out of 10. Love it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, what have you got next? Um, well, I'm dipping back into the classics again for familiarity for people. So, uh, what if Jaina hadn't run away when she found out that Mr. Rochester was already married? I say run away, but it's it's more it's not she, that she goes, "Oh no, you have a wife," and and just legs it. She she has a good think about things, and she was very tempted to stay. Yeah. Um, it's not okay. I think when it initially comes out, she thinks, "Oh God, he's been he's been toying with me. He can't be taking me seriously at all." Yeah. Um, and then he sort of makes his big protestation and tries to persuade her and and almost, you know, coerce her into staying. And she wants to stay. Yeah. It's just that it's Victorian. It's early Victorian times and. She does not believe in the love between partners without marriage. Yeah. You know, sexual love doesn't exist without marriage. And marriage doesn't exist without sexual love for her as well. That That's the main point of her arc. Yeah. And, you know, she's someone who desperately wants to be loved because she had such a miserable childhood. And she knows that nobody's ever going to love her as well as Rochester is ever again. No, Nobody is is ever going to feel like that about her um because nobody's going to understand her as well yeah and you know it's an incredibly powerful thing for someone to 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 realize that the person who just accepts you as you and and loves you completely is out of your reach or they're dead yeah or whatever it's it's a it's you know that that's a, a serious head fuck um, so yes, she was absolutely tempted. She was tempted to go abroad with him, where no one would know, and they would live as man and wife. She's, you know, she she wants him. It's couched in Victorian prose, but it's very definitely yes. I sexually do want this man, mm. but she knows that she'll hate herself because she's violating her core beliefs. So that's what she does. She she runs off, and we know that she ends up um, by by strange chance, as you find in Victorian novels, um, living with her cousins, who that she who she's never met, her estranged cousins. Mm. But what if she didn't do that? What if, in a moment of weakness, she decided that she could compromise on her core values and she went abroad with Mr. Rochester and lived with him as his wife? 
Well, he wouldn't have been blinded. His house might have still burnt down. <laughs> but yeah, if he left his his wife there, yes. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it, yeah, in broad terms, that stuff wouldn't have happened. Um, I have to say, I think that their relationship wouldn't have survived. No. Because on one level, he, she would know that she was not being true to herself and that she was with a man that she was not legally entitled to be with. Yeah. Um, that she was not in God's eyes, which was very important to her. She wasn't entitled to be with him. You know, she was in... And again, her view, she was sinning. She was doing something that was unworthy. And I think she would start to really dislike herself. So half, as she even says it herself, half the time insensible with delight because she'd be with this person who loved her, who she loved, and half the time filled with deepest shame and self-loathing. Yeah. And if she was like that, I don't think he would cease to love her, but he would be so frustrated that she couldn't let it go that there would be some serious tensions in the relationship and then there'd be no legal document keeping them together. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that they they would not have been on equal footing. No, she would be entirely dependent on him. Yeah. Without, again, the legal back backing of, well, I'm married to you and you have to support me because I'm married to you. Yeah. And I'm not allowed to earn my own living anymore. Yeah. And if society, you know if people in the society they were in did find out, she would have been the one who would have received much of the ire. He could have still re-entered public, you know, polite society to a certain degree. Yes. I mean, he might have even been welcomed in certain circles. Yeah. Um, a rake was far more often welcomed than a fallen woman. Yeah. Well, you know, there are exceptions, but Jane was not a great beauty or anything like that. There was nothing that would make people overlook the fact that um, she'd act in a shameful way kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it would have it would have destroyed her socially, but I think it would have destroyed her emotionally and spiritually as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I, again, you know, I can imagine, you know, having the, that emotional and spiritual aspect and also, you know, that sense that you're not on equal footing in terms of the relationship that one person is risking a considerable amount more, you know, that would that would be actually kind of terrifying, I think, as well. Yeah, that that's the other thing, um, you know, between the whole being happy and in love and full of self-loathing and also in fear all the time, even subconsciously, fear of, of it ending and knowing or believing that it would end. And because you believe it's going to end, bringing about the ending almost. Yeah. And it's just, you know, she had a lot of fortitude. She might have walked away at another time, but it would have all—it wouldn't have been too late. But it would have been too late to to get out without any any stain on her reputation at all, as it were. Yeah. Um, I think it, what this illustrates is, yes, I mean, there are a few things that happen kind of conveniently in the latter half of the book, um, but she's not. What she does doesn't make her happy. It makes her really miserable, but she keeps her integrity. Yeah. And that's the important thing. And there's there's a lot to be said for great trials, great suffering, something that really, really hurts you, but you know it is the right thing to do, actually does more for you as a person than doing the easy option that you know is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. It's an interesting one. 
Yeah. And I, it weirdly, it was something we did Jane Eyre for GCSE. <laughs> so a long time ago now. <laughs> um, but yes, there was, we were supposed to do not a what if type essay, but someone, we were reading out essays in class and the girl behind me who incidentally was a complete bitch to me through the entire time I was at the convent. Mm-hmm. Don't know what she had against me, but wasn't that fond of her either. But she actually read out part of her essay and said, well, you know, maybe Jane and Mr. Rochester could have, if he'd just been honest with her and said, I have a wife yet living, maybe they could have just lived together as friends until his wife died. And I'm like, well, there was no indication that his wife was sick or anything other than, you know, being mentally unbalanced and trying to kill people during the night, which is not the safest place to keep your, your girlfriend. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there was no indication that she was actually going to die. There was, you know, you're asking somebody to set aside their entire life with no reward or whatever. And also it wasn't okay for a man and woman to just live together. Yeah. And can you honestly say that you could live with somebody that you were in love with, who you were sexually very attracted to, that you wanted, and say, no, no, no neither of us are going to do anything. Yeah. I mean, the reason Jane ran away... It, I mean, it would have resulted in she murder. She didn't trust so. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she didn't trust herself. She didn't trust herself not to fall into his arms and then his bed because that's what she wanted to do. That's why she ran away. Yeah. She should have waited for her paycheck first, is the only thing I will say. It was not sensible to run off with only 12 shillings to her name. <laughs> okay, all right. So... Uh, I've got one for you. Okay. The Witcher. So I'm going to go with the TV series, the recent TV series, rather than the books, um, because I know uh, we've both watched it. So what if Geralt didn't agree to go with Yaskia to Sintra? Uh, Well, that that takes out a whole bunch of things, doesn't it? It ruins everything. Um, so yeah, essentially that you know, there's that great line where <laughs> he goes, uh, "Wine, wine, women, um, uh, food, win- women, and wine." Geralt, and he say, so you see Geralt pause, and the next thing he's you know in the bathtub and he's agreed to go. What if he just he literally just repeated "fuck off, bard" and had walked off and gone to a whorehouse or something like that instead? What if he hadn't agreed to go to Sintra with Yaskia? Well, for a start, Geralt's reputation would not have got as cleaned up. He would not have got as many jobs. His PR would still be pretty abysmal. Yes. So I think one of the first things that obviously is that if he had not been at Sintra, then Dewey would have probably, Dewey would have died, potentially. Yeah. Which would have massive later effects for the rest of the series, which we're not going to talk about. Um, Or perhaps, um, you know, the princess would have, you know, destroyed everything. But we know for certain, at the very least, that there would have been no calling of the child surprise. Yeah. It might have also ended in a massive massacre. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's there's a potential that actually Dewey would have just been killed. Um, but if, you know, if Geralt hadn't stopped the princess when her powers activated, uh, everyone in the capital might have been killed, including Yaskia, which would have obviously had a knock-on effect on Geralt's reputation because Yaskia is the one who has been, obviously, improving his reputation. 
But there would have been no call for the child surprise. Now, if there's no call for the child surprise, that means further down the line, the Jin event never happens, either because Yaskier was killed or because Yaskier wasn't killed, but Geralt is not there fishing in that lake that day looking for a Jin because he's not suffering from sleeplessness. Yeah. And of course, if the Jin incident doesn't happen, you know, he never meets Yennefer. And if Yennefer doesn't meet Geralt, there is a very high probability that she would not have fought. You know, there's a great possibility she would not have fought in the Battle of Sodden Hill at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The thing that strikes me is the fact that Geralt's reputation would still be pretty dire. Yeah. I mean, I think Yaskia sort of raises the tone not only of Geralt, but of witches in general, because they're kind of reviled before the white wolf starts to become... Yeah. No, they really, really are. ...someone you call on when you've got a problem. Exactly. Um, So, uh, but it is very interesting, because then Ciri would not have been sort of carted off for... To, to go and find Geralt at the end with Sintra. Uh, if Sintra was taken, Ciri would have probably also ended up being taken, which, again, I'm not going to, because that's obviously spoilers for the rest of the series, but things would have changed massively in terms of the way that the war happened. Um, again, if Yennefer had not been there at the war, um, Sodden Hill would have probably been taken if she weren't part of the battle at the end. Yeah. Um, you know, so... It changes the whole the whole thing, and Geralt is just sort of tootling about, <laughs> just killing monsters with a terrible reputation. I think that's the thing. Um, this is when we talk about um, whether a character is necessary or not, and if they're not necessary, not to you know don't put them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's that's absolutely valid. But I've seen people say that Yaski is annoying. I mean, Yaski is almost everyone's favourite. Or, you know, he's someone that everyone was like, yeah, you've kind of got to have him. He offsets Geralt, he offsets Yennefer, who are both really, really intense, powerful people. Yeah. Um, But some people have actually said, no, he's really annoying. I'm fed up with the singing. He doesn't do anything. What does he add to the plot? He adds this to the plot. If you don't have him there being a tiny pebble altering the course of a river, then the entire plot goes off in a completely it, different direction. It really, really does. Uh, you know, that, that, that line of sort of, Geralt saying shoveling shit it's true in terms of the fact that Yaskia is there behind most of the things which have actually happened to Geralt it's because Yaskia has has been present and has brought him into into the noble world he's kind of introduced him into the noble world and through that nobility into the world of politics and the problems that have come with that um and obviously Geralt, you know, finds his other his own ways in with other people, you know, like there's characters like Regis who haven't been introduced yet, but etc. You know, that there are other sort of avenues in. It's not solely because of Yaskia, but in terms of the series, in terms of what happens in series one, um, it is. Yaskia is the one who's there. And Yaskia is also the one who rapidly improves Geralt's reputation across the continent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so yes, when you're deciding whether a character is important or not, look at what their actions do to affect the timeline of the story. You'd probably be amazed. If they don't do anything with the timeline of the story, then, yeah, you probably don't need them. Yeah. 
So that's what we mean about sort of, you know, structure and what happens if you put with thread. Um, anyway, a slightly lighter one from me. <laughs> Before we look at some, we look at a couple of examples of our own work. I, I, I've I got, I've got one more as well. You've got one more as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, Pride and Prejudice again. I'm dipping into the classics here because people are familiar with them. Mm -hmm. What if Darcy, the first time he proposes, what if he had proposed differently, as in politely, <laughs> or what if he had not managed to summon it up at all? What if instead of racing over to the Collins's house when Elizabeth stays back because she has a headache, he he doesn't charge out of the house in order to try and find her alone and propose to her. What if he just sort of stays back and thinks about it? This is a really interesting one because, yes, they really fall apart during this incredibly rude marriage proposal, but it is also this moment... If he hadn't done that, they would not have had this, this moment of, you know... Uh, exchange where they're throwing things at each other is an impassioned moment, but the truth also comes out as a result of that. Yeah, it, it changes everything, doesn't it? Because, I mean, Elizabeth has just received knowledge from uh, Captain Fitzwilliam that Mr. Darcy had discouraged Bingley from pursuing Jane, her sister. Mm -hmm. And was upset that that's why she's kind of stressed herself into a headache. And, you know, my sympathies, because the number of times I've done that. <laughs> you know, something stressful happens, kind of like, oh, great, now I've got a headache. Thank yeah. you. Um, but, you know, Darcy's coming in at the worst possible moment when Elizabeth is disposed to think most badly of him and then tells her that, you know, he's not doing himself any favours by asking her to marry him, but he's asking anyway because he can't get her out of his head. And it's like, that's the most negging type of proposal <laughs> ever. Um. And she's going to turn him down no matter what. If he if he proposed politely, yeah. with great professions of love, she would have been confused, embarrassed, and probably more polite as she turned him down. Yeah, but she would have still turned him down for the. And he may have been too abashed to say, "Well, why am why are you turning me down? I am actually quite a catch. Look at my estate," kind of thing. Um, she might may never have told him that she'd found out about how he had discouraged. Bingley from pursuing Jane, which has upset her. But then she also would never, he wouldn't have been so annoyed that he wrote her a letter setting things straight about Wentworth. Oh, uh, not uh, Wentworth, um, Wickham. Wickham. Yeah. Um, about Mr. Wickham. So Lizzie would not have been as forearmed about that, about how wrong she was about Mr. Wickham. So when rumours started to come out once Wickham had gone, yeah. She would have been wary, but she might not have cautioned her father against sending Lydia off to Brighton. Yeah. And when Lydia's downfall came about, um, Elizabeth would not have had anybody to, you know, the chances of her having had a, a walk around uh, Pemberley and then run into Darcy again and then been having all those pleasant exchanges where they're starting to revise their opinions of each other mm. and then having him happening on her because he's clearly intending to propose to her again <laughs> um, just as she gets the news about Lydia he, I mean those things probably wouldn't have happened and he wouldn't have then charged off to go and, and fix things with Wickham and yeah. with Lydia because I think it is it is that confrontation first of all which if she had just politely said no um, he I think that it would have sort of dampened his feelings a little bit. But the confrontation, you know, it got his blood boiling because, you know, they had to hash things out a little bit. He had to rethink himself and he couldn't 
you know, get her out of his head, which is also why he ended up in, you know, Pemberley faster, earlier on than expected, which is why he bumped into her, you know. Um, yeah. And he his character was improved because of that confrontation, because she had pointed out the fact that maybe he'd been he'd been a bit too prideful, a little bit too arrogant. Um, and so he's had to sort of correct himself. He's had to rethink these things. And as you say, you know, so he there wouldn't have been that behavioural shift with him. There wouldn't have been that level of understanding because I think a part of Elizabeth falls in love with him because, yes, yeah, she sees the estate, but it's not the estate. It's what he's like when he's there. He's comfortable. He's, he's in his own home territory. And honestly, I think a big part of the thing she really likes is the way that he interacts and treats his little sister. Yeah, there's that and the fact that he... I mean, I think he's so annoyed when she turns him down initially, not just because she's turned him down and he feels rejected, but the fact that all this stuff comes out and he's like, okay, some of the stuff you think about me, maybe it's right and that really annoys me. Maybe I need to look at myself. But a lot of what you know about me is actually wrong. Someone's yeah. been spreading falsehoods and I have a right to clear my reputation on this. Yeah. Um, and then obviously he's gone away and... <laughs> to use the modern parlance, done some work on himself. So when he meets Elizabeth's few sensible relations, he can receive them in, in a way that is more appropriate rather than being, you know, this standoffish jerk, which is what he's been for most of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and he's he's lovely and charming and he's very polite. And as you say, if they hadn't had that confrontation, he would have been very unlikely to to have had any engagement, further engagement with Elizabeth, which would have encouraged him to believe that perhaps there was hope of salvaging this. Yeah. Um, and he also probably wouldn't have run off to go and help uh, Lydia and stuff like that. Also because there wouldn't have been that same level of guilt because he wouldn't have known that Wickham had lied to Elizabeth. He would have probably felt guilty in terms of, I should have exposed him and it's now it's caused her harm. But because, you know, they had spoken about it, it was something which he had shared with her. I think it was, it was doubly, he felt doubly guilty in the fact that he had kept it to himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it would have completely changed the outcome of the plot, probably the fortunes of the family, because the chances of prevailing upon Wickham to marry Lydia and regain some respectability would have gone out the window, which means that the marriage prospects of the other four girls would have gone out the window as well. Yeah. Um, it would not have been a story that ended happily at that point. No, it would not have been. All right. Um I said I had another one, but I'm actually going to shelve it for now uh, because we are running out of time. So, okay, so we're going to do one each for <laughs> our, our own work. Yeah. So I'm going to do The Sons of Thestian. And Jules actually suggested this one. We're back on the dark <laughs> timeline. We're back Very on dark. the dark timeline. <laughs> so the dark timeline is um, sort of in a sort of a three three quarters of the way through the book, near sort of actually nearing toward the end, um, Zachary and Rufus have a confrontation where Jonathan and Faye are trying to escape into Avalon. Zachary has stopped them with Marcel and Emmerich, and Rufus has also turned up. And the pair fight, and Zachary almost kills Rufus. Um, 
sort of. And in return, Rufus activates his utter powers. Um, and he almost kills Zachary. And in the end, he lets Zachary and the others go. So here's the what if question that Jules posed. She said, what if he had killed Zachary? So what if Rufus had killed Zachary? Yeah. Um, By accident, in fairness. I said by by accident. accident. By accident, yeah. Okay, so what if, yeah, what if in that confrontation he had actually killed Zachary? Um, I do think, first of all, in terms of what it would have meant for Rufus, it would have been him crossing a threshold. Crossing a threshold much earlier than he he does, you know, later on when he, he first has to kill someone, you know, in the second book. You know, by the time he reaches the second book, he's already killed several people and it's driving him insane. But if, you know, in this particular case, if he had killed Zachary, who at that point had prostrated himself before Rufus and said, kill me, let the others go. Um, it probably would have snapped something inside of Rufus, because he this is a person he does have a connection with. This is a person whom, you know, he loved and thought of, you know, very fondly, despite the fact that a pair of them had gone off in very separate directions. So there would have been very complex feelings attached to that. And with all of, you know, Atia raging through him, that kind of would have really exploded outwards. And one of two things would have happened. Either in that moment he would have just basically contilt continued the killing spree as in lent fully into Atia's power and murdered Marcel and Emmerich or the shock of killing Zachary would have stopped him and he would have actually obeyed Zachary's um, request and let Marcel and Emmerich go so he would have lost any kind of connection with Marcel and Emmerich Marcel in particular would never have forgiven him for that, never. Yeah, they would have gone back. They would have reported to Belphegor Odin. Belphegor Odin <laughs> would never, ever, ever have forgiven Rufus for that because, despite what is said, where everyone says, "Oh, Rufus is the favorite," he's not. Zachary is the favorite. Yes, <laughs> Belphegor really loves Zachary. Zachary's like a son to him. So it would have completely turned things over. Um, he would have been absolutely furious. He would have gone on the warpath to to get revenge. Um, the other thing is that because he had just killed Zachary, I don't think Rufus would have actually said, let's go back to Bethine. Because, the, again, that threshold has been crossed so he, they probably would have actually ended up going to Avalon instead, which would have made Yonathan a traitor. He would yeah. not have been able to return to Hamartia. Um, Rufus... Well, I don't know whether Rufus would have died in the care, you know, when he arrived in Avalon, but certainly it would not have been... A, it would have been a very fraught situation. With the rest of the Xi, if they had arrived and said, hey, I've got this Hamartian prince and this half-dead Magi. Because we know, obviously, how well that goes in um, Blood of the Delphi. So, it, yeah, the whole political thing would have been completely fraught. Uh, the Rossignol family probably would have ended up being attacked and interrogated. Um 
Rufus might not have recovered and probably his his psyche would have been a little bit fractured at that point because he'd crossed that and he didn't have anyone to really help him heal following that. Belfagor would have gone to war. Yeah. And also, at this point, Sverin would not have been able to be raised from the dead. So, yeah, there would have been an all-out war between the Hamartians and the um, and and the, and the fairies. Um, and Bethine would have ended up being caught in the middle of it. And Bethine would have probably taken the side of the fairies. Um, so, yeah, it would have been incredibly messy. And there, there would be no Magi support at all. All of the Magi would be against Rufus, obviously, because he killed Zachary. So, it's like, do you think that Rufus would have ended up becoming like the Dark Lord? He would have certainly been framed like that. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that in order to cope with what he'd done, he would he would have to lean into it. If that makes sense. Yeah. He would have had to have started to really believe it. And particularly at that point, he was angry at Zachary. He didn't actually know what Zachary was trying to do. So I think in some ways he could have forgiven himself a little bit more if this was post-Zachary being part of the plot that ended with Jonathan dying. But up until that point, Zachary had been an asshole. Um, and he didn't agree with what Zachary was doing. But Zachary hadn't had hadn't really personally injured him. You yeah. know? So he he would have been, it would have destroyed him, I think. Because that's just not the kind of person that Rufus is. And if he if he crossed that line, yeah, he would have ended up becoming a very different person. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think it would have, it's the, the, way, the effect that it has on Rufus that interests me. And I think that it would kind of, even if it didn't sort of destroy him immediately, it would eat away at him. There'd be a fault line there. Yeah. And, um, some of the darker powers in Hamartia might well have decided, well, he's actually quite a useful person to take advantage of and would have worked on it. Yeah. Um, also, what would have happened is that Eliane probably would have been killed and they would have used Joshua to revive Sverin instead. Well, somehow that is darker than using Jonathan. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Little baby. Off you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's nasty. Okay. Um. <laughs> okay. Uh, my one. My one. On the surface, mine seems a bit frivolous. Um, I'm looking at I Rule the Night, which is obviously the fourth book in the Unveiled series. Um, and again, this is kind of spoilery. Um, but I don't really have a love triangle in it because it's very clear, I think, who M really wants to be with yeah. pretty much from, from book one. But she does have a moment where she realises that she is actually attracted to Lucas as well. She can't help it. There's something that they, there's something about music and music when they're playing together that's almost supernatural. Yeah. For various reasons. And yeah, she she genuinely has some, some feelings there, some attraction. Um, so looking at the part in book four where she has come back from from doing something in in Horsham, <laughs> which Aunt Mary sends her off to do, <laughs> which we haven't discussed yet. No. Um, she comes back and thinks, right, this is it. I'm going to make a go of it with Kieran. I can't talk about this thing with the dark thing, um, but I can sort of like 
really commit myself. He he obviously feels I've been pulling away. I don't want to. And then she gets back and realises he's gone off on an archaeology field trip without telling her, not realising that she's come back early. Yeah. And that evening she goes and practices with Lucas instead. And there is an opportunity at that moment that Em and Lucas could have ended up together. There's one tiny, tiny split second you see on the page. Yeah. That, you know, if you're not looking for it, you probably wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> I've seen but, the what if. <laughs> but Madeline has actually seen the what if. So what if Em picked Lucas over Kieran at that moment? Well, there would have been a reader named Matt out there who would have been incredibly pleased, but <laughs> it would have ended in disaster. It would not least, and okay, massive spoilers, guys. Not least because Lucas, Lucas's spirit was slipping already, and the real Lucas was still in there. Yes, uh, that, that that that's kind of an issue, definitely. Um, the question, I guess, is, you know, if M had ended up sort of getting together with Lucas while she was still with Kieran well that would have completely destroyed Kieran for a start yeah that'd be it that would kind of let me over sort of he's already got sort of intimacy and trust issues yeah and that would be kind of like I'm just going to go back to sleeping with people and not caring about them but that's that's him done yeah and that would have been the end of their relationship as well yeah absolutely and at that point, she might have said, thought, well, if I've hurt him that badly, then maybe Lucas is who I should be with, even though she still cared more about Kieran. Yeah. So that would have probably been how that played out. Which um, wouldn't have been great for her relationship with Lucas. It wouldn't have been great. He would have always had that sort of doubt there as well. Mm -hmm. And also, the the dark thing is still doing its thing. The main point of that book is not the romance. It is, in fact, that this, this great evil that's been feeding off Edinburgh for centuries. Yeah is intending to recorporealize itself and is trying to pick a human body based on on M's choices. Um, it would have left Kieran completely unprotected by M. Mm. So he might well have recorporealized and taken Kieran's form, maybe. And if M going see what happens is obviously M goes into the veil to do battle with it and Lucas sort of tags along by accident but yeah. not in the flesh and it leaves his body sort of vulnerable. Yeah. So yeah, the dark thing may have risen again and taken Lucas's body, um, or maybe not. But M would not have had that certainty in herself. She wouldn't have been certain that there was somebody on the outside who was waiting for her. Yeah. So e even with everything she's done, even with everything that she did to sort of hurt Kieran to make him back off, mm. she would still have had that, you know, she still believed that there was something to go back yeah. for. I think, And you need that in the veil. Sorry, I haven't quite finished no, no, yet. Um, you need that in the veil because the, what the veil does is it works on your inherent death wish, your inherent need to be, to entropy, mm. to, to go back to being what you were before. Um, you were you were alive kind of thing so she might have beaten the dark thing but I think she would have died doing it she wouldn't have had that last push to come back um, if Lucas had been there with her then yeah he still would have needed to die and that would have been even worse if she'd been involved with him yeah I think even if we you know take away the whole element of, of the main plot um, their relationship would not have been healthy on several on several levels. First of all, 
I think that even unconsciously, Emmeline might have accidentally tethered Lucas's the the uh, what what was his name? Uh, something Luke something. No, no, it's Jean Louis who has oh, Lucas's so, body. Isn't yeah, it? that's it. So Jean Louis, she would have ended up tethering Jean Louis' spirit into Lucas's body, knowingly or not. I think that there was always that risk. So she would have actually been suppressing Lucas. Uh, next, um, she, because Lucas and I and I do mean ghost Lucas, Lucas the one she falls in love with. Um, because he is dead, he cannot tether her to life, which is what she needs. So she would have ended up sort of, I think, drifting closer and closer into sort of, into the, into the, into death. And I think that would have resulted in her one day just not coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I've said this before, and I at some point I really will put this up on my website. This is basically Matt Willis's fault because when he edited the books for me, he Lucas was supposed to be a bit part who appeared in book two and then disappeared, and Matt kind of gave me a little nudge and said, "No, there's more for this character to do." And all this happened, and everything sort of spiraled from there to the point where, when I was writing book four, I genuinely at one point didn't know who M was going to pick. It could have gone either way. <laughs> so there is an entire alternate ending to book four, which changes things completely. It's much, much darker than, than what actually genuinely happens. And I will at some point put it up on my website. The other thing I will say is it spiralled off in my head and I've got a book that's going to happen in the Melanie Beckett series mm. once I get to it. Obviously, I'm still in Harker and Blackthorn mode at the moment. Yeah. Where there is kind of a mirror episode a mirror universe episode <laughs> in Melanie Beckett. Melanie finds herself in another universe. And at first she's delighted to be there because the girlfriend she's recently broken up with is available in a way that she was not available, shall we say, before. <laughs> but it turns out this mirror universe um, is not that great. And um, yeah, there's going to be Harker and Blackthorn crossover and, and all sorts of shit in there as well. Aww. So it's going to be great fun. That is so <laughs> exciting. Madeline's already worked out what I mean. Yeah, I already know. And my heart is breaking. And also sort of just, I'm so excited. This is such a cool concept. Okay. I mean, this has been brilliant fun. I think we should probably do another one of these episodes at some point in the future because... Yeah, definitely. It, it's a good thought exercise. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, now it's it's your turn, guys. What are some of your favourite what-if? Do you have any what-if questions for us? We would love to hear them. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr, or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Uh, yes, I've fallen down a vampire rabbit hole, which sounds very bizarre. But vampire uh, rabbits? Vampire rabbits, yes, yeah, is totally about vampire rabbits. Um, if anyone wants to write those books, I will probably read those as well. Basically, I got a free um, trial of Kindle Unlimited recently, and I started thinking, well, I read a lot of urban fantasy and I read a lot of other, I, I read pretty much everything. 
that I'm getting through so many books, this might actually be like something to go forward with. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started looking specifically for indie authors of urban fantasy. And I do mean urban fantasy, not paranormal romance. Mm. Um, Because I want to know what else is out there. Mm. And I'd kind of thought that the vampire urban fantasy was a little bit tired because everybody seems to write vampires. But actually, it's more that the paranormal romance with vampires is a bit tired if you're bored of paranormal romance so that's me calling myself on my own shit there anyway i discovered an author called jr rain who has written a series of books called vampire for hire i don't think the series is complete yet but there are 24 books in that series wow. so and you know they're short quick reads and they're punchy and they're gritty and they're really pretty cool i'm i'm really enjoying um samantha moon that's the main character's uh descent into into proper vampirism she desperately tries to hold on to her humanity she's a private investigator as so many characters are in urban fantasy mm-hmm. um but she kind of has to be because she can't really hold down a day job anymore what with you know bursting into flames in the sun <laughs> <laughs> thank you nosferatu um i like it because she has you know she's trying to hold on to her humanity because she's got two young children mm. Uh, she has a husband who is revolted by her because she's cold and essentially dead during the day. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's really done a number on their sex life. It's kind of nothing's gelling there anymore. Yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> and it's just really interesting. Um, I, I love the way that it's done. Uh, I'm I'm kind of up for reading all 24 books. I'm, I'm on book four now. I've got through four books this week. And then I just went on his fantastic fiction page and I realised there's like three spin-off series and then three more series that sort of intersect with this one. And I'm like, oh my God, there's like a hundred books all told. That should only take you a couple of months then. (laughs) But, I mean, even I looked at that with something like dismay, but also a little thrill of, well, if if they stay this quality, I'm going to get through probably most of them. Um, I'm not usually put off by a large backlist. And yeah, indie writer. Um, there's lots of great indie urban fantasy writers out there, and I'm definitely going to be delving into more of them. Wow. But I really, really like this. It's kind of refreshed the vampire thing for me. And um, yeah, you should definitely give them a go. Uh, honestly, if you think you're going to read all of them, then you're probably better off getting one month of Kindle Unlimited and just going <laughs> through them that way. <laughs> I'm not saying they're not worth four ninety nine, seven ninety nine a book, but you know, if you're on a budget, <laughs> yeah, that'd be worth it. All right, well, thanks very much for that one, James, and thank you guys so much for listening. We'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.